0: You are listening to MediaPolis Now, the podcast channel of MediaPolis, a journal of cities and culture. This is our Voices podcast series in which we interview thinkers and practitioners about their work at the junction of cities, culture, and media. I am your host, Scott Rogers. In this episode, we speak with Christian Olussen. Christian is based at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands where he is Assistant Professor of Digital Media and Cultural Heritage. His work is focused on archiving theory and history, film and media historiography, digital methods, found footage, remixing, and practice-based research. In our discussion, Christian and I discuss various ways of thinking about film sound and landscapes, extending from the experimental ends of film theory and cinephilia to the creative appropriations of sonic film material in hip-hop music. Throughout, we pay a lot of attention to the kinds of environments and atmospheres sound creates and makes possible in and through film. Before we go to the interview, which was recorded on 17th of June, 2022, a disclaimer. We do discuss and play short sections of recorded material for which we do not own the copyright. The use of this material is strictly for the purposes of criticism, commentary, teaching, scholarship, and research, and hence covered under the legal provisions of Fair Use or Fair Dealing. All credits go directly to the rightful owners, and no copyright infringement is intended. Christian, an important context for our discussion today is the intersection between research and pedagogy. You teach film, sound, and music at the University of Amsterdam, which, like my own institution, Birkbeck University of London— expresses aspirations towards practice-based approaches to media, but has traditionally emphasized academic perspectives and approaches. And my sense is, to put it politely, practice-based approaches are less integrated into what both of our institutions do, and it's fair to say that you accordingly occupy a bit more of a unique position within your institution. So tell me a bit about how you developed your interests in film, sound, and music, and specifically more practice-based approaches to teaching these subjects.
1: I think, first of all, uh, I would say that uh, there have been quite a few initiatives to integrate practice-based approaches also at the University of Amsterdam. So there are a lot of people around who have been interested in the whole development of videographic criticism, videographic scholarship from very early on at the institution, and who are also working actively with integrating practice-based approaches at the University of Amsterdam. It is possible to do, for instance, a BA thesis that is partly audiovisual, so you still have to, you know, write a traditional creator statement but longer, somewhat more theoretically than the ones you see in journals online in combination with, for instance, an audiovisual essay. And it's sort of using that momentum of that curiosity and interest in uh, new pedagogical developments and new assignment formats I've also tried to introduce these more sound-oriented assignments and approaches. So in the electives that we give uh, and that we can suggest focus on a particular uh, research interest, in my case, film, sound, and music, I've tried to integrate assignments that f- focus specifically on sound and work purely with sound. And I've tried to develop different formats that in various ways draw uh, on uh, sound study scholarship, sound theory, and also film theory. This interest is an interest that I've had for for quite a few years. So I've always had an interest in, what you could call with a term that I find a bit vague, experimental music and sound art, um, practices that are, you could say, somewhat at the margins of you know working conventionally with sound. And that approach uh, sound as an object, sound as something to be organized in, in experimental or creative ways. And that is always also from the moment I, I began studying film and media, I've been feeding into the way I approach film analysis and media analysis. So early on as a student, way back in 2007, I developed this habit of, of listening to films as a part of, you know, my daily routine. And there was a very specific circumstance leading to that. I had spent quite some time in Italy before beginning to study and missing the whole atmosphere of that. It was like, it's it's a very simple motivation. (laughs) I I began listening to to Italian films, especially that I liked to sort of be in that sound environment or that soundscape and and sort of, how can you say it, experience that again somehow.
0: (laughs) So Jorge, are you saying that you were listening just to the soundtrack of the film without the visual element. Exactly.
1: I would put it on my DVD player that was plugged into my stereo and then just listening to the films as a sort of background noise or a kind of soundscape, rather, I would say. Uh, And these would be like Antonioni films, uh, things like that, that I was, you know, into at the time, basically. And that then also led to working creatively with sound, to appropriating sound, to putting together pieces, collages as a kind of sound diary of films that i had been watching at the time. So, I mean, one of the, again, this is a very early experiment, but what I did back at the time to see what could it lead to if I tried to bring together filmic moments, filmic sounds, anything from sound effects, sounds from locations in one piece as a collage. And I began doing this around two 2006-2007, and the first piece I made is very uh, matter-of-factly called 10 Soundtracks in Three and a Half Minutes, drawing together bits from various films and soundtracks that I was listening to at the time. contains a lot of uh, sounds from uh, horror films, uh, Dio Argento, Mayo Bava, Nicolas Rook, but also from, for instance, uh, Antonioni's La which has a really beautiful electroacoustic sound composition at the beginning, where you have this long tracking shot down a building but also an early sound film like The Zigovertov's Enthusiasm, which is this very early use of a Soviet uh, sound system that he used for going into the Donbass region uh, at the time for recording real sound. In terms of reference points, it's really <laughs> kind of messy, but it reflects what sort of fascinated me about sonically about certain films at the time, and also was an experiment in bringing that all together as, as a kind of diary of what I had been watching at the time. So at the time I was making this, I was making it without a clear reference point. And then slowly I, I realized that actually quite a few people have been doing similar things and perhaps even in a more <laughs> accomplished way uh, and also uh, in a more theorized manner that I actually, that appealed to me when finally I became aware of these examples. So for instance, yeah, the preeminent film sound theorist, Michel Chion, he's a music concrete composer, so someone who works with real sounds, but at the same time, he, he's also a film theorist. So he comes from from that perspective of having worked with sound for many years as a basis for theorizing films. And one of his early compositions, uh, La Ronde, from 1982, he integrates, for instance, uh, samples from the film Prix de Beauté, which is a film with Louis Brooks from if I remember correctly, 1930, that was made in two versions, a sound version and a silent version, which for him was fascinating in terms of how it staged her voice in different ways and sort of weaving that into a collage of other sounds that he's recorded. He expresses uh, his admiration for that film and fascination with the quite tragic situation that this actress finds herself in in that film. And what is interesting is that this piece is also part of a more diary-like piece that is actually supposed to reflect uh, an encounter with a film as part of other daily activities. So he also refers to other situations or stages other situations in this piece, La Ronde. And of course, as, as many listeners will be familiar with, he has theorized the voice and film sound in general extensively in his book. So I find it interesting that before that work actually came out, he also approached film sound in this way, in a creative manner. So another example that I became aware of around 2010, when that came out, is a French group called uh, Radio Radiomontal. And they're a French group working on the one hand with making, you could say, modern Accompaniments for silent films, uh, what they call cinemixing, but also working with cinemixing in a different sense of really only making collages consisting of sound film samples, dialogue samples, yeah, sound samples of any kind, effects, all these things really. And they made a project with the comic artist Pierre La Police in 2005, which is called Trauma Vision, based purely on samples from French dubs of uh, B films and exploitation films.
0: Je crois que notre ami a reçu un mauvais coup. Il faut qu'il
2: soit transporté immédiatement en ville à l'hôpital. Mais avant de faire le nécessaire, je veux que vous préleviez 10 cubes de sang sur sa blessure pour l'analyser. Ensuite, Steve pourra l'emmener dans l'ambulance et vous lui dites de prendre avec lui une grosse quantité de plasma. Et ne faites aucun coagulant. Hein. Jusqu'à ce qu'ils aient fait toutes les analyses, hein. c'est préférable. Bien entendu, docteur. Oui, tout est prêt. Coramine, adrénaline, pyrodoxine et sulfamide. Le docteur Suzanne Drake, qui a sa place parmi les plus grands chercheurs, a poursuivi des expériences. It's a
1: really, really fantastic piece It lasts an hour or so, where they just link together these absurd dialogue lines from uh, very low budgets, uh, science fiction films, horror films, exploitation films, uh, to create all of these, you know, completely absurdist dialogues out of it. And they mix in also music pieces with it, ambient pieces, electronica. I mean, it's, it's something that is more funny than scholarly, I would say. But for me, it was really an eye opener open at the time because it was just uh, such a strong expression of cinephilia sonically. So close to at least
0: what i had hoped to achieve (laughs) with my own piece i would say do you think something being funny is as important as something being scholarly if you're using it as an example
1: Yeah, I think you can... I like scholarship, that's also funny, but I think it's always a fine line because, uh, you know, do you get a point across clearly enough? I think here it's sympathetic to the object of analysis in the sense that they're working with films that have a lot of humor in them and should be approached with humor. (laughs) So in that sense, it works. But I think as for anything that we ask our students to do they should always use humor carefully <laughs> in their work so in, in in that sense it's not a perfect example of how to approach sound appropriation perhaps in an educational context i would say but i do play it to my students and they usually find it quite funny too very often i also have french-speaking students in the class who will really connect to it <laughs> to put it that way yeah the last piece in this opening section is a relatively recent piece by a Scottish artist, Rachel McBrinn, that I also really, really like and have played every year for my students now, three years in a, in a row. It's called Orange and Teal. basic idea is really to also try to do a soundscape analysis of contemporary hollywood films so uh, she approaches this not in a scholarly manner but rather in a poetic more exploratory manner so she cuts out all the dialogues of various films i don't have an overview of which films she's used some of them i can recognize because there are still a few dialogue bits in there but it creates this very pleasant ambient environment where you certainly don't understand it, or it doesn't come across as a Hollywood film, but it is basically the texture of a Hollywood film soundscape, which I find really interesting. So as a starting point, I also play this for my students as a strategy that they can engage with. And I actually had students doing something uh, similar uh, in their assignments So for me, this is also interesting coming across these examples. It also occurred to me that very few scholars, at least what I know of, discuss them or place them within a tradition of filmic appropriation. So you have a lot of scholarship on, for instance, found footage film, uh, recycled cinema, all these things. I mean, there are plenty of works that you can go to to find discussions of that within an experimental film tradition, but not when it comes to sound. And beginning to look into this phenomenon, it, it sort of occurred to me how much is out there. I mean, I had this interest for a while. And I began creating a database on my own to sort of, you know, get an overview. And when I began doing that, I sort of thought, OK, it cannot be a lot of examples. But then you realize that there are thousands and thousands of examples out there. And some of them are very, you know, clearly situated in sound art practice. But also, if you look at, at popular music more broadly, you, you'll notice quite quickly how, especially in the, in the 90s, when making sample-based music was more common than, than it is today, how often films were sampled in some kind of way that appropriates the meaning of films and and, and the, the sound snippets that were used. And if you want to sort of develop a deeper understanding of that, there's, at least to my knowledge, really no place to go. There is one theorist that I find really interesting in this regard and that sort of expresses something similar, and that is the French philosopher and musicologist Peter who has written about this idea of the listener's rights. So he is interested in how experiencing music and developing a kind of fondness for particular passages or bits of music can also lead to appropriation as an interpretive gesture, you could say. Because you like a particular segment or fragment of a musical piece, you want to show that to others and therefore highlight it or even appropriate it in a certain way, which could be, for instance, by taking out uh, a short snippet of music and, and put it together with other short segments of music in a medley, for instance. Also, he understands this in a, in a very historical way. So he tries to sort of reframe the whole history of arranging music, of making sheets for music with instructions on how to play music as a history of interpretation. And he traces that all the way up to digital practices of you know DJing, uh, making mixtapes, all these things. And by highlighting that, he says that there's always been an interpretive practice closely or intimately linked to just listening to music and appreciating music. And I think when it comes to film, There, there is nothing similar. There's no history of listening to cinema in a similar way. There's no listener's rights of the spectator, as far as I know of. And and I'm interested in nurturing that perspective and also developing, you could say, a a film media history that is audio-centric, taking this practice of sampling and appropriating films as a point of departure.
0: And um, before we go to the next question, um, main question I had... Mm. Could you tell me a little bit about the database you've mentioned? This is something that uh, the listeners will not necessarily uh, know the full story of. Yeah, so I, I tried to indeed make
1: a database of all, first of all, all the examples that I knew then really writing down okay first of all you know the basic details of the, when was it released label artist etc but also what does it take from a film is it is it a sample of a soundtrack of a dialogue of a sound effect to the extent that i can i also try to write down notes about how is it appropriated how is it changed but that of course can be quite labor intensive so i don't always do it and i think that that database currently counts a few hundred entries it's been a while since I updated it but I'm still working on it the thing is though that as I said in the beginning I was not really aware of how much there is to to dive into and I realized that you know there are people doing this already which you know I'm thankful for <laughs> there is this enormous database uh, called who sampled.com uh, which is basically a database first of all made or devoted to tracing how music is sampled in music but I think, I think five years ago or something, they also added a a movie category uh, because they also acknowledged or they sort of realized that when it comes to film sampling, this is such an extensive phenomenon that we need to also document that, uh, especially when it comes to, you could say, more popular genres hip-hop, electronic music, uh, that database is extremely extensive, and you can find so much information in it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of it myself, and uh, very much enjoy checking out the thousands of times Funky Drummer has been sampled. Uh, Just to sort of switch gears slightly, now in this podcast, as you know, we're interested in putting media and the city into conversation, and that's in line with the focus of our parent journal, Polis, But this sometimes means that we're really branching out a little bit further than that and thinking in a slightly more expansive way about how media intersect with spatiality, place, and location. And I think it's really on this more general level that your own work, and in particular your teaching, that will be interesting for our listeners. So tell me a little bit more about how spatiality, place, and location are important to what you do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I, I try to bring that into my teaching in, in different ways. So in the examples that I use, I also couple examples to theory and recent film theory. You could say that also thinks about the relation between, for instance, the location of a film's production and its overall soundtrack. And in my teaching, I give my students an introduction to soundscape theory. So the key theorist of that would be, of course, Amiré Schaffer, who has, has written a book called The Soundscape and the Tuning of the World, if I remember correctly, where he introduces different key concepts that you can use for analyzing your sonic environment. So basically, understanding what is the background noise, which he calls a keynote, what is the sound that draws your attention or that you pay attention to in a sound environment, which would be signal, but also he introduces a, a concept such as a sound mark, which is, you know, more community specific sound. So for instance, church bells would be an instance of that. And that basic framework, I always introduce that uh, to my students in my teaching, but then I try to go a step further and also make a bridge to film theory. And there is one book that I used that came out recently, written by a sound artist and film scholar, Buddha Dicha Chattopadhyay. The book is called The Auditory Setting and came out in 2021. I've been familiar with his work for quite some years also before that because he was uh, also writing a lot about acoustic ecology, sound preservation, preservation of sound archives and film theory. But in that book he tries to merge film theory with soundscape theory to uh, offer a framework with which uh, students or film scholars can also operationalize some of these concepts in their own work. And he talks a lot about how location sound is rendered in film soundtracks, how post-production practices also contribute to create what he calls auditory presence of a location. So is a location, um, do we believe in the sound that we hear? Is it realistic? All of those questions he raises in that book, but from a soundscape theoretical perspective. So that's the direction I try to push my students into on the one hand, because I think it's it's important that they develop, of course, general uh, listening skills, but also that they can understand the sonic environment critically. And I want that to feed into their film analysis toolkit you could say because it's it's really not something that is that prominent in in you could say film analysis courses generally Chattopadhyay also has this great term of uh, mise en sonore so he uses that instead of mise en scene so we often do not think about how sounds are organized on a soundtrack to stage the action, stage the narrative or, or basically the setting in a certain way. And adding that concept, that layer, I think really is helpful for students to, to think about film tracks, soundtracks also in terms of spatiality.
0: Mise en sonore. Mise en sonore. I've never heard that phrase before, but it's a, a fantastic one. Yeah, I think it's a great concept. <laughs> Indeed. Do you have any examples that uh, you use with your students?
1: Yeah, so I mean, again, uh, these are not soundtracks as such. But again, I've compiled different sound art works, you could say, both scholarly, some of them more artistic, that try to appropriate location sound in various ways and also investigate spaces in which films are produced, spaces that have perhaps inspired filmmakers to make films in a certain way, but also the spaces in which films are shown and projected. So I brought three examples with me for this conversation that I think are really interesting in this regard. So the first one is the piece The own space by the British sound artist Robin Rambeau, who's also better known under the name Scanner. And he made in 1997 an homage to Derek Jarman, the filmmaker Derek Jarman, uh, whose work he's very fond of. And what he does in that piece, there's sort of three layers. So on the one hand, there is an interview playing with Derek Jarman, an interview in which he explains his filmmaking practice, what he wants to achieve with film, what it is in relation to narrative film, how it's different. But there's also uh, all of that is layered on top of processed field recordings from his Prospect Cottage, The the Place where he lived uh, in the final years of his life.
2: I suppose I am a director, but the way my films are formulated, that is, well, particularly the last one, without a script or a particular narrative, I think people are freer to actually use the spur of the moment. It's very associative and free. But, I mean, the audiences always seem to interpret those sort of films, non-narrative films, in different ways. Whereas with the narrative film, you're saying jump here, cry here. Well, if you're being successful, you're saying giggle here. And, you know, you are manipulating the audience in much more direct fashion. Oh, my heart rejoices in the roar of the surf on the shingle. Marvellous sweet music it is to my ears. Oh, what joy there is in the embrace of water and earth. I have no idea what I want. I mean, I don't think anyone really does, although, of course, they always tell everyone that they know. I think one's actually creating any, uh, something. One uh, has no idea how it's going to end up. And not until the, we've done the dub and the music's on the film and the titles are there do I really know what, what has been made. And even then, I rather rely on audiences to tell me. And I adapt their best guesses, as it were.
0: You've, you've been there, Scott. I don't know
1: it. <laughs> but,
0: yeah. Yes, I have. And it's definitely a place that is visually desolate, but also it's, you know, just reflecting on it and hearing you talk about it. And with this clip in mind as well, I mean, the experience there is a multi-sensory one and, and sound is very important to it. Yeah, yeah. I remember
1: the album that this is from is called The Garden is Full of Metal. And you also said that there was a lot of metal. There's a
0: lot of metal there. Metal frogs or toads, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so
1: the second piece I also play is is one by Luc Ferrari, a composer whose work I'm really fond of and have been listening to for many years. So he's again as Michel Chion, he's one of these composers that started well he he started much earlier also with serial music, but then he uh went into uh musique concrete and electroacoustic music and worked for many years at the French Radio, and then in the early 70s he went into a very you could say what comes across as a field recording style, but isn't field recording, many people make a point out of that. <laughs> Uh, But basically, recordings of uh, his own trips, his daily life that come across uh, again as diary notes, you could say. He calls those works his anecdotique, so they're anecdotes that he's fond of from places where he's been. And uh, there's a series that he makes, presque rien, it's called almost nothing it means that sort of conveys this idea of these are relatively raw pieces even if they aren't or raw and edited pieces but in fact they're highly constructed you know layerings of uh, all kinds of recordings and memories that thoughts that he sort of comes to mind for him and in this piece you know he's on a trip to to italy (laughs) and he's just walking around and you hear a very typical street atmosphere in an italian city i don't know exactly where it is but also on top of that you have loops layered from a, a film conversation which again I'm not sure which film it is but I can definitely hear uh, that it's Marcello Mastroianni who's featured in it and again this is sort of an example of expressing a kind of cinephilia and relating that to a particular place that you're fond of On passe par la rue de la télévision It's not made here to express a a deeper critical point, I would say, but it's more, again, really a diary note, something more personal, a moment that you cherish or, or whatever. And I think that's very typical of how he sometimes also draws on film in his work. And again, I think it can also, there's a lot of scholarship, for instance, on film tourism going to places where, <laughs> the, the locations that you've seen in a film, right? But again, you don't really see this link being made uh, through sound. So I think this example illustrates that quite nicely. So the final piece that I chose is really a very concrete example of a practice based scholarly project that works actively with uh, sound as a means for critical thinking and for analyzing, especially in this case, film distribution film projection critically and documenting the spaces in which that takes place. So this was a project carried out by film scholar Michael Pickett, I think that's how you pronounce it, who also goes under the artist name Michael Lightborn, <laughs> which I think is a quite funny name, probably to, to convey cinema, I guess. He's based at Warwick University and he's been working a lot on found footage filmmaking. He's written a book about Joseph Cornell, for instance, and also in most of his projects tries to integrate practice-based approaches. And this recording here, which is called Hyde Park Electromagnetic, was part of a project called the Projection Project, basically. And it was dedicated to documenting the practice of projecting films on analog carriers or analog formats as that practice was disappearing. It's about documenting the sounds of a craft, of a practice that is disappearing by going into the projection booth and recording all the sounds that sort of go on in there. So he records the preparation of a film print, checking the quality of a film print, putting it in the projector, all the machinery in there. And also he interviewed the projectionist to sort of see how they would understand sounds in their work environment. For instance, to if the film makes certain sounds once being projected, you know, what, what does that say about the quality of the print? All these kinds of things. So how are sonic cues offering information to the projectionist? So all of that is really documented in this project. It's taking a very, you could say, rigorous soundscape approach as the one proposed by Murray Sheffer, without, however, being dogmatic in the sense that it really creates this sound documentation of that whole environment of that practice as something we will be able to look back on in many years and and understand how this worked sonically. And of course, it's also a quite unique document of a particular place in which a cinema is projected that we don't often get to hear. Like, it's not that often that we get to go to a projection booth, I guess, right? So I find that a really interesting example too. And it's also so yeah, it was you know released in a very beautiful LP package from the label Grun Recorder, a German label devoted uniquely to field recording and mostly unedited raw field recordings, or to the extent that they they can be <laughs> recordings that are not very processed, to put it that way.
0: So I'm not a film and television scholar myself, but one of the things that fascinates me. I guess in my own teaching, which is more focused on media technology and culture in general, is that the relationships of film and television in particular are helpful for approaching the notion of intermediality or the close interconnections, exchanges, interdependencies between media forms. And intermediality is an interest that you have as well, not just for thinking about the close technological or textual relationships between film and television, but also their environmental connections. So tell us a little bit about some of the examples you work with through your students which explore these sorts of themes of intermediality.
1: So first of all, I would say that in relation to the um, examples that we just listened to, I really encourage my students to also think about film soundtracks in relation to the environments in which they're produced, shown, and also projected. But they're also a different category of examples that you could say relate to how films are Encountered in a private space, that I also try to introduce my students to, to make them reflect on their own situation in which they encounter films, and and what sort of the the specificities of that space would be in terms of sound, what kind of sonic experience of that would that sort of produce. And I would say again, the examples that I've chosen are they're focusing mostly on that intermedial trajectory that many. Critics, scholars have been interested in, especially in the eighties, nineties, but still today of, of cinema's transition to television, right? To experiencing cinema within the, first of all, flow television in the context of flow television, but also in relation to other media, for instance online. Uh, I mean, you have many ways of approaching this theoretically. And I always find, you know, you can talk about intermediality, transmediality, crossmediality, post-cinematic viewing situations. And I want to also highlight that through some of these pieces that I choose for my students. So on the one hand, I want them to make aware of historical discussions. So I want to point them to that moment of, you know, the late 1890s, 80s, 90s, early 90s, sorry, where this was increasingly a concern for film critics. So really television taking over in a fashion that it hadn't done until then, at least being experienced as one of these, you know, many ends of cinema. (laughs) And then also I want to make them think about how that could be theorized or approached today, or at least, you know, what types of intermedialities we could consider I mean, one critic that I really find interesting is the French film critic Serge who was a very prominent film critic in France in the 70s, 80s, 90s and wrote for both, you know, very specialized reviews, but also newspapers and who was just very sharp. And he took television very seriously and also wanted to understand that transition. And he did this by reviewing television as film or trying to understand what was so seductive or specific about television. He wrote a short book called Le Salaire du Sapeur, which is a riff on the title of Crusoe's uh, film Le Salaire de la Peur, Wages of Fear, in which he goes through anything. Like he reviews tennis matches, commercials, you know, thinking about cinematographic qualities of a toilet paper commercial, things like that. He's watching anything. <laughs> And that, I think, for many scholars at that point in time, became an interesting reference point because he also approaches it with humor, but, you know, a real sense of curiosity to understand that transition and how it sort of shapes cinema in a certain way. He's also heavily featured, for instance, in Jean-Luc Godard's historical project, Cinema*, where there are several interview bits uh, with him. And he keeps coming back also today as a key theorist, a key critic of that moment. Um, so the first example I've chosen here relates directly to that. It's from a record made by the French guitarist Noël Akshoté, who works with guitar improvisation. This was his first record. I think he's made 150 cents because he releases pretty much all of his performances. But this is really one where he's worked with the album format, structuring in a way so that uh, on this particular record, it's called Sound Pages uh, from 1994, the record conveys an evening spent watching flow television.
2: Again, this is Mike Mitchell for No Bullshit
1: TV. It's time to continue with some real action. So be ready for the Jean-Luc Godard movie of the day and stay on the line, folks. Si je vous mets
0: le doigt dans le cul, vous comptez jusqu'à 33, là, j'aurai mis la salle, la forêt de la foule. Le début c'est dans la montagne, un endroit qui s'appelle le lieu. On lui montre ce qu'elle aura à faire dans la ferme ou la petite usine.
1: Elle commence tout de suite si elle veut. La Denise dit qu'elle doit d'abord
0: redescendre en bas. Elle doit régler ses affaires. En particulier louer son appartement au bord du lac. Elle a rendez-vous avec quelqu'un qui est d'accord de les reprendre. Elle remontera lundi pour commencer.
1: So he has, for that record, produced these fake announcements of, for instance, CNN news or updates on, on the war or different situations in the world. But there are also, for instance, uh, track titles that convey particular places, New York, grad, Japan. But essentially... What it wants to achieve is to sort of reflect this experience of watching and encountering classic films on television in a flow television context at home. So he also, for instance, in the booklet for the CD, he has pictures of him walking past his television set at different moments of the day. And you also see film frames from classic films and also a frame from Jean-Luc Godard's Histoire du Cinéma on the television set. And he frames this whole experience in the framework or the the line of thinking of Sash So it's the second track on the CD. So after that first announcement of television news or television program that he's made for this record, uh, he reads an excerpt from one of Sash texts. And then he goes on to sort of, again, stage these different items that would be featured in a classic evening at that time in a television program. And it contains, for instance, an announcement also of a good film which is you listen to it but it's humorous it's very tongue-in-cheek and also it then features him sort of playing improvising over an interview with Jean-Luc Godard that track is called JLG as a way to to engage with his filmic work and again Interpreted in a certain way right so again if we think back on this concept of listeners right i think this, this certainly applies here because he's sort of you know imposing a very personal style of playing with his guitar on top of all of this again and, and on top of all that he, he also reads an excerpt from echo text if i remember correctly so that's all there together here and it expresses that particular moment in time very well i would say all right second one yeah the second example is by another sound artist whose work I'm really fond of Jan jelinek who has worked uh, for many years with making sound collages that try to obscure the origins of the sound source so he makes these very textured pieces that sometimes you can sort of hear what it is most times you cannot sometimes it's very clear <laughs> uh, but he made a piece called prime time in 2012 that is in a way also very similar to the actual tip piece. In the sense that it wants to convey what it could be like to watch, I would say mostly television, but also to a certain extent films today in an online context. Adam, nice like to talk to you, sir. No, Adam no. straight With to your Twitter account and your, one of your most recent tweets is I'm really the si Mitt Romney no longer says what a nice guy Barack Obama is. Si uh, so want so because for a period
2: of time, was going come out come and saying he's a fine man, he's a, a wonderful man. Ci esibiamo in forma mano. perché non vogliamo la nostra personalità oscuri la nostra filosofia. desiderio ardente desiderio di entrare nel in museo un certo senso era un sogno per me non avrei mai potuto immaginare che questo sogno si sarebbe avverato entrare a far parte di, un, di questo gruppo di ragazze eccezionali ma poi non so come è successo le circostanze sono state favorevoli
1: I mean without... Going through the whole history, it, it's a live soundtrack that he made for a video piece by the artist Du Boston and Lucas, um, based in the Netherlands, uh, which is called Primetime Paradise, which is a really, really great video piece in which you see these uh, fragments from different television items layered onto each other. And it sort of has, you know, it's difficult to describe, but it's sort of as if you, like, it, it's a tunnel that you sort of are sucked into where, you know, there's a constant, I wouldn't say bombardment, but you, you constantly get a flow of images from these different items layered onto each other in a really fascinating visual construction. <laughs> and he sort of tries to do the same in his sound piece. So the suite, where different news items, films, film soundtracks are interwoven in a manner that really sucks you in. So in the video piece, you see, for instance, an excerpt from Antonioni's The Red Desert. You don't hear that in the collage, but you hear plenty of film music. I think there's some Bernard Herman in there, but also a collage of, of news broadcasts, basically. It's all things that he just recorded on that particular day that he made the piece in August 2012. And it contained, for instance, a pre-presidential Donald Trump talking about Obama and against the backdrop of this very eerie music, which I think perfectly conveys both the experience of watching all these things together, but also that moment.
0: So there's an overlap here between these examples you've been discussing and digital sampling, to state something maybe quite obvious which is now a very well-established technique in contemporary music, of course, and notably in hip-hop production. And discussions and debates about sampling often center on the issue of copyright and the reuse or remixing of recorded music. But another area of interest, certainly for us, certainly for you, is the use of sampled material from films, notably dialogue, but other elements as well, in music. So focusing here on hip hop in particular, what are just a few of the many examples that you think are interesting in this respect?
1: So first of all, I think it's again good to just briefly come back to this concept of the listeners' rights, because I think a point that Shendi makes in posing or suggesting this concept is also to sidestep the whole issue of copyright and to say that in spite of the copyright of all of these different copyright legislations, people have appropriated sound, music, and interpreted by the same token sound and music in different ways exactly on on their terms. So that that has always existed. And I think that's definitely also something that applies to hip hop, (laughs) but also a really good example if not the best example of it I would say I think the problem is also that I don't, I don't know if it's a problem but I think we tend to not really consider those particular popular practices of interpretation because they're not sort of safely positioned within a tradition of experimental uh, media practice that we can relate to and that have a voice or a place in for instance you know cinematic context film club contexts or more cinephile circles but I would say that when it comes to appropriating film sound hip-hop is I think, think probably the most accomplished and advanced art form of them all (laughs) because it's been doing it from the very beginning it's always been an integral part of hip-hop to reference films to play film clips and also of you know world building creating personas creating scenes related to specific places within hip-hop so I think it's important to highlight that too and the examples that I choose for that also are examples that work really well with the students because the of course many of them still listen to these things or know them are familiar with them and become surprised by this practice because they never thought about it. So I, I play a range of hip-hop examples for my students to sort of trace the history of this and sort of show them how how present it still is because it's, it's still going on. And then in combination with that, I also, after playing those examples to them, I ask them to go into whosampled.com and find an example that they like themselves and then, you know, consider how it's been appropriated in a popular production, so to say. That usually works quite well. So the examples that I've chosen here, on the one hand, they trace a history of that but also different forms of world-building and different forms of interpretation. I could have chosen more recent examples. The examples that we have here go up to the late 90s, but it's still going on very much today. So the first one I chose is really a classic of this. It's Double D and Steinsky's lesson, The Payoff Mix from 1983. was first released in 1985 but it was a part of a remix competition that the label tommy boy organized in 83 and double d and steinsky who were white producers with privileged access to studio facilities and a sampler made this particular piece
0: heel toe heel toe
2: heel toe heel toe hop forward hop back hop 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 play it for her. play it for me play it for her. play it for me play it Play it, play it, play it. Play it. Play it.
1: Kick it. What is interesting is that it's sort of a medley of many things you could say, but it has a sample of Casablanca where you have the phrase play it again, Sam being used as a sort of yeah, what would you call it I don't know if if
0: hook is the right word or you know a sort of Yeah, hook chorus. Yeah. If we want to use the hip hop phraseology, it would be the hook. Yeah. I think. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it comes
1: quite late in the track, but it really just shows how integral referencing and sampling films were to hip hop from a very early stage.
0: Sure. And so maybe let's just rattle through them. You have another example, which is King Ghidorah, Monster Zero from 2003.
1: Yeah, so this is a track made by the rapper who's also better known as MF Doom, Metal Face Doom. And I think it's interesting in, in many respects because he is, I think, probably the virtuoso sampler of film sampling, I would say, because there's so many film samples on all of his records. And interestingly, some of the tracks don't even feature him rapping, but are just film samples. So actually, I think that if you isolated the samples alone without the beats, it would be very similar to the collages of, for instance, Radio Montal that we listened to in the beginning, but it's just set, you know, to a beat here and they have fantastic pieces to listen to. Command all
2: units to take defensive position. what is Monster Zero? Monster Zero. Pay heed to my warning, the entire human race will perish from the earth, where the monster Ghedra passes, only flaming ruins are left.
1: Yeah, on the one hand, because he's also been asked by this and he highlights how integral this has been to hip hop from the very beginning. So he says that, for instance, in the early 1980s, he would be listening to pseudo beat shows that would, you know, feature classic breaks, voiceovers, but also samples from films and comedy sketches, and, and he would be doing the same thing, but developing it as, you know, an artistic approach. In his case, I would say that there's a strong Afrofuturist component to it, too, in the sense that he works a lot with science fiction films, especially Japanese science fiction films, so that's also where the name King Ghidorah comes from, and Godzilla films, monster films, exploitation films, but basically he's taking so much stuff and also, for instance, he's sampling television works in a very similar fashion to the way in which, for instance, do like, is doing it, I would say. I, I would make that connection. So in this piece here, Monster Zero, he's sampling, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight films or television shows, right? So you have Invasion of Astro Monster, Dawn of the Dead, Godzilla versus King, uh, King Ghidorah, sorry, Star Trek, Twilight Zone, Godzilla vs. Gigan, Still Smoking, a Cheech and Chong film, Destroy All Monsters. So you can really see what a tapestry of references and snippets it is, right? And some of this will be sound effects, dialogue lines
0: soundtrack uh, music so it,
1: it's really very mixed
0: <laughs> yeah it's a wonderful collage of different uh, soundscapes and different sections from films so uh, maybe what's the third example you'd like to highlight i mean you there's so many subgenres. again you could highlight many things
1: so this one is really an example of what you call horrorcore. so uh, hip-hop that focuses mainly on horror films exploitation films which comes mostly from the south so horrorcore, i think emerged mainly in houston and memphis and this is really a primary Example of what you call Memphis Horror Core by the group 36 Mafia. How can you have faith in a God that can even control creation?
2: How can he lead you to salvation? There is no hope in chaos, but only. Welcome to the other side of reality. And
1: this is your turn.
2: This is the introduction
1: to the track that mainly consists of a dialogue snippet and titles from a film. In this case, it's Brain Scan from 94 and Warlock, the Armageddon, also from 94, or around that time at least. (laughs) In the latter case, it's a dialogue snippet, right? So, and these are the only things playing, you know, as an introduction to the track, right? So it's basically, it's a sound collage, it's a sound composition that reflects a mode of sonic cinephilia.
0: And so moving on to a group which would be very familiar to a certain generation of hip-hop fans, for sure, the Wu-Tang Clan, I think you wanted to give us the example of the mystery of chess boxing, which I think, if I recall, is probably they're coming out track when they first, you know, kind of announce themselves to the world. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but it's from 1993.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know, actually, but you're probably right. Uh, <laughs> but what I find interesting about this example is, of course, it's such a canonical example of film sampling in music. But again, even though probably many people do get the film references, it's not really something that we discuss in those terms as an instance of film appropriation, right? But the whole identity is built around Kung Fu films, right? The Wu Tang Clan.
2: A game of chess is like a sword fight. You must think first, before you move. Moon style is immensely strong and immune to nearly any weapon. When it's properly used, it's almost invincible. Oh, I'ma give it to you no trivia, Roll like straight from Bolivia. My hip hop will and shock the nation. Like the proclamation, this And there's and so I'm many samples on that record from
1: Kung ball, Fu ball, films ball, all, all over the place, down, right? And down, this one I f- to me it's one of the it's a less advanced example in the sense that it really starts with a dialogue, except that sets the stage for the track that then follows. Some of the sounds are then also subsequently integrated into the track. But here it really serves mainly as a reference, I would say, and a kind of world building that sort of reflects the code of the Wu-Tang Clan. And also the Risa, he has, there is this book, I think it's called The Wu-Tang Manual, in which he also writes that film is an extremely important part of their production process and of creating tracks, that it's just about much about creating personas in a certain way, following the examples of these filmic references. I think it's interesting also from the perspective that you can see that someone like the Risa from Wu-Tang Clan goes on to work with Tarantino on his films, as well as with Jim Jarmusch, for instance, on Ghost Dog, in creating soundtracks that work in a hip hop mode, or at least imbue their films with a kind of hip hop world
0: building in a sampling (laughs) manner. I guess you could say. Yeah, it's been fascinating to see that it's not just about. I mean, obviously, there's a long history of hip hip hop artists becoming actors. But I think the point you make about Persona is a really important dimension to that, that if world building is going on in in music, it's not so difficult to imagine that translating over to film and then not just the artist becoming another character in the film, but actually infusing the film with that kind of ethos, I suppose.
1: I did come across one paper that actually theorizes Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog as a film that reflects sampling techniques in the ways that it works with manipulation of, of speed. <laughs> but I'm not sure how... Uh how sound it is or how, uh, yeah. So the last example is the Prodigy. Yeah, this is again, uh, probably an example that is familiar to most listeners, but I find it really interesting. And this is again, something that I learned, of course, via whosample.com that, you know, I I couldn't deduct that on my own, but I find it interesting because it shows how these references also flow or are exchanged between different scenes in, in very unpredictable ways. So of course, Prodigy, very well-known UK dance act from that started in the early 90s, if I remember correctly, that were in techno rave music, but also were hugely inspired by hip-hop. So they use hip-hop samples a lot on their records. Some rappers feature on their records, for instance, Cool Keith, and they also sample ultra MCs quite uh, a few times. And also, what I find interesting here is that many people, some people, uh, for instance, the critic Simon Reynolds, has described early rave and UK dance music as the Brit's first earnest attempt to make hip-hop it just goes a bit faster right but basically the structures are quite similar and also highlighted how fusion dranger of of hip house that didn't really catch on in the u.s actually was relatively strong in the uk but long story short what happens in their very well-known piece breathe from 97 is that the sample Wu-Tang Clan's The Mystery of Chessbox. And, and it's not very obvious when you first listen, but if you then listen closely, you can hear that what the sample is, not the dialogue, but all of those sound effects that are made when you sort of, you know, use the sword, right? <laughs> and it's actually used, as, a, if I remember correctly, as a way to, to transition from one segment to the other in the song in a really interesting way. Again, that's, of course, the nature of sampling, that once it's on a record, it also becomes detached from, you could say, the original source material and can be sampled again and again and again. And and you have that in so much techno, you know, they, they would be pulling samples of films from other records uh, if they didn't have the film themselves. For instance, Blade Runner, which is sampled thousands of times in, in Jungle Music, for instance.
0: So let's... Let's end by bringing this all back to the interface of research, pedagogy, and media practice. As we've been intimating throughout, really, in the interdisciplinary fields of film, media, and cultural studies, there is this increasing interest in dedicating you know, as much attention to media practice as theory. And not so much as practical training, but as alternative modes of critical thinking. Now, I think our discussion has been very useful, and I can imagine a lot of students listening to this and you know learning a lot from what you're saying. But particularly for those scholars who might have aspirations to bring forms of practice into their teaching as an alternative mode of critical thinking, but maybe are less sure of where to start, what would you think would be the most important piece of advice you'd give them, if there was one piece of advice?
1: I think the most important advice would still be to to listen to cinema and basically just you know listen to favorite films of yours without watching the image and why I want to give that piece of advice is also that I know of several scholars who of course know the exercise that Michel Chion has proposed in which you make students make a film segmentation based on the soundtrack alone without watching the film. But uh, very often, at least in my impression, it may not be the, the strongest empirical basis. Uh, <laughs> but in, it's my impression that scholars don't do that on their own, that they don't listen to films just as part of their routine or as part of their research practice as a starting point. And I think that's really the most important because it is such a different experience and. To me, it's really the best way to approach it is to do it with a film that you know well, perhaps a film that you've seen several times that you think you are very familiar with. And once you do that, you will realize how many facets or how many dimensions of it you you may actually not know that well because you are forced into a listening situation.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode with Christian Olesen. Stay tuned for our next episode, and in the meantime, do take a look at the Mediapolis Journal website by visiting Mediapolis Journal, that's all one word dot com. That's Mediapolisjournal.com, where you can find thought provoking content such as our special dossier on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, edited by Johan Anderson with essays from Rebecca Edelman, Katriona Kelly, James Gregg, Maxine Alyakov, and Kelly McGee. It explores how the war's representation on social and other media platforms may be experienced in real time, but also entails a cacophony of images and messages over which nobody has full authorial control. I'm Scott Rogers, and you've been listening to MediaPolis Now.